You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. I'm Tyler Matheson. Welcome, everybody, to The Exchange. Here's what's ahead. The Magnificent Seven trade has created a lot of dislocation of capital, and our market guest says that is a good thing because it has created a lot of opportunity. He's here to tell us where those opportunities lie. Plus, less than two weeks after the Bitcoin ETF approval, there are two asset managers dominating the flow race, and one of them is here with us today. An interview with Fidelity's head of digital assets just minutes away. And we'll get a small bank gut check to under-the-radar names. Both beat on earnings, both stops up big in the past three months, and both CEOs will join us in this hour. But we begin with today's markets. The record-breaking numbers, Dom Chu, Dom. Record-breaking numbers for sure, Tyler, and it's green across the board for the Dow, the S&P 500, and NASDAQ. And specifically, we're keying in on the NASDAQ Composite Index up one and a quarter percent, thanks in large part to some of the stuff we'll be talking about right now and later on in the show. But it's 15,616 up 190 points, one and a quarter percent gains. The S&P 500, again, records there. Up about 35 points, 4,900 the last trade there. This is, by the way, just around near session highs. We're up 36 points right now at the highs of the session so far. Up 39 is the range so far and up about 16 points at the low. So it's generally been a good day. And the Dow Industrials average up about one-third of 1%, 120 points, up 38,024 the last trade. Why the outperformance? It's specifically in communication services and intent and technology. That's the driving force behind what's happening right now. And one of the big contributing factors is a slate of new record highs within semiconductors. Talk about names like NVIDIA, record high, advanced micro devices, record high, Broadcom, AMAT. A lot of them are out there are trading at record highs. That's pushing the Vanek Vector Semiconductor ETF up 3% to another record high. And you can kind of see here a real breakout happening for this particular ETF. We'll see if that remains a leading indicator for the rest of that technology trade. So keep an eye on that tech trade. And then one other place to watch, it's not all green. The single worst performing stock in the S&P 500 today, and it's a big one, is DuPont, which is down 13% after pre-announcing results that came largely below analyst expectations. The company expects some of those weakness trends to continue in the current quarter. But again, that pre-announcement is driving a lot of the downside action in DuPont. Currently, Tyler down 13%, uh, certainly a one to watch there with the stock's market at record highs. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom Chu, thank you very much. Uh, our next guest says that all the capital that's uh, gone into the Magnificent Seven stocks has created opportunity in what he calls the forgotten stocks, and one of them, Verizon. He called it a better than investment than Tesla six months ago, and so far, so good. Joining us now, Chris Grisanti, MAI Capital Management's Chief Equity Strategist. Chris, welcome. Walk us through that, that Verizon call, because, because Verizon's been a kind of sleepy dog lately. That's the truth, Tyler, but, but therein lies the opportunity, I think. So, so it, it's been sleepy for years, yes. right? And Tesla's been the exciting go-go stock. But if you think we're at the kind of tail end of an economic comeback, and if you think that Verizon at you know, six months ago, less than seven times earnings, a greater than 8% yield. Both of those almost records, by the way, for Verizon in terms of low valuation. And then you look at Tesla, which at the end of the day is a car manufacturer, a terrific one, but still a car manufacturer valued at a higher uh, market cap than any of the other car manufacturers put together. You kind of get the feeling that the, the weights will shift, and indeed they have. So, so uh, investors have come back. You know, and Verizon's gone from seven times to nine times earnings, still not at all heroic. There's still, I think, some appreciation possibly ahead. So, so I, I get the idea that you and, and others of your associates believe that loving the unloved may be the way to go this sure. year. 
But sometimes the unloved are unloved for, for good reasons. reasons. <laughs> Absolutely. So how do you discern the 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 lovable unloved from the desire from the from the from the correctly unloved. Sure. So you, you build yourself in a big margin of error. So Verizon's a great example. Even though it was clearly unloved, it still had an investment grade balance sheet. It had still had terrific cash flow. And it was ending a capital spending cycle on the 5G. So you had all these kind of tailwinds and nobody really cared about it all. They were getting rid of some investments in media, too, that exactly. had not worked for them. Exactly. So, so there you had some backstop. So, so the, I thought the worst case scenario would just be dead money. So I, I like that. And if you look forward, there's companies that are down for a good reason and probably we'd stay away from. I'd look particularly at the balance sheets in this higher interest rate environment. But there's some other stuff that that is forgotten and looks real attractive. To Let's them. talk about two, two, well, one company and one commodity. One, the commodity is lithium, right. which has gone down a great deal in down, value. Down, down. You like it, and Albemarle, which is a provider of it. Right, so the largest producer of lithium in the world, Albemarle. Uh, again, like Verizon, investment-grade company. Uh, this reminds me of oil three years ago, where nobody wanted it. Energy, of course, in 2020 was the worst-performing sector. Lithium prices are down 80%. So I'm not calling the bottom, and I'm not calling a time period, but I am saying I bet several years from now, this would be a good place to be. Remember, energy in 21 and 22 was the best performing sector of the S&P. So go where folks hate. And that's let's, take, <laughs> let's, take a, let's take a break here. I'm going to sure. come back to you after we go first to Rick Santelli and get the news on the five-year auctions, uh, five-year note auctions. Hi, Tyler. Listen, not good news here. 61 billion fives, as I've said before, just like yesterday's twos, We've never seen bigger auctions. We've seen exactly the same 61 billion, billion size five-year, and those were during COVID years in 2021. But those are the high watermark, and we're back to those again. And today's 61 billion five-years yielded at this Dutch auction 4.055. The issue is the one issue market was trading 4.035. It tailed two full basis points. That is a big minus. And most of the metrics were highly negative. 2.31 bid to cover. So $2.31 of investor demand chasing every dollar of securities being auctioned off. That is the weakest ratio since SEP of 22. Just a whisker under 61% indirect bidders. Those are the big foreign buyers the worst since September of 2022. The only decent metric was direct bidders, and that was a little higher than 10 auction average. Dealers took a whopping 20.4%. Guess what? Worst in, or the most they've taken since September of 22. So as you look at the charts, you can see how the market is moving higher pretty much on all maturities. Five-year yields now are on pace for the highest yield close since the 12th of December. And that D-minus grade, D-minus grade is not a nice setup going into tomorrow's seven-year note auction. Tyler, back to you. So let me ask you to clip through all the wonderful numbers that you just gave us. Is the bottom line here that the market doesn't want to accept or can't digest the volume of supply that is being pushed its way? Well, yes, I think that's a pretty 
accurate assessment. Investors are gun shy to step up too aggressively to auctions that have moved to very close to all time record high amounts being auctioned. And this of course moves into not only a US scenario, but a global scenario where debt offerings are gonna be on the high side for the entire year. All right, Rick Santelli, thanks very much. Chris Grisanti, uh, MAI Capital, back with us now. Do you have any reaction to uh, those uh, uh, fixed income numbers? Well, I've thought for a, a little bit, Tyler, that the, that the market consensus on, on the Fed cutting sooner rather than later is, is a bit optimistic. And, mm -hmm. and somebody used the phrase victory cuts, like the Fed is going to celebrate and take a victory lap by giving us a cut in a month or two. I, I just have never seen that in my 30-year career. The Fed cuts for bad reasons, not for good reasons. So, mm -hmm. so I think rates ease their way back up as we're seeing with today's auction. So let's go back to Albemarle and lithium and, and your, your thesis that this, this that stock and that commodity have been knocked down so much that ultimately, eventually, uh, they're going to come back sure. because they are unloved and they have some intrinsic value. However, at the same time, we keep hearing about how the uptake of electronic, electric vehicles is slackening. Right. Uh, and so that would say, well, maybe one of the big demand theses or theses of, uh, behind lithium is being undercut. Yeah, but but that that feeling I think is is the feature, not the bug here. Mm -hmm. I think the, the the consensus is starting to form as oh, EVs are a fad, EVs are slumping. I I think that's why lithium prices are so low. Lithium prices are also so low because remember there was a, a scarcity of lithium a couple of years ago, not so now. folks really or, pre-ordered. So the inventories are relatively high at the dealers, but those will work off. And so we've heard all these stories about peak oil three years ago and things like that when oil was down. So I think there's a cycle of the story, you know, creating the bear market. But, but I do think it's hard. The U.S. is probably the, the slowest adopter of EVs, but Europe is doing it. China, as we know, is doing it in spades. So it's a big market out there, and I think this is a cyclical slump, not a secular change. All right. Good stuff, Chris. Thanks very much. Sure, Appreciate Tyler. Good to be with Sunday. you. Nice to have you here. Chris Cassanti is with MAI Capital Management. All right, meantime, Bitcoin is down, down about 20% from its recent high of about $49,000 following the SEC's approval of spot ETFs roughly two weeks ago. Who figured? Prices hovering near their lowest level in two months, trying to stay above the 40,000 mark. Uh, those new ETF spot ETFs overall have seen positive net inflows since their launch. Well, you'd expect that, I guess, according to Fundstrat. BlackRock and Fidelity's products leading the way by far with more than a billion dollars in net inflows each. On the other hand, investors have cashed out more than $3 billion from the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust since its conversion to a spot ETF. For more on the state of spot Bitcoin ETFs, we're joined by Fidelity's head of digital assets, Cynthia Lobeset, and our own Kate Rooney. Kate, the floor is yours. All right, Tyler, thank you very much. We really haven't heard from Fidelity on this topic yet. So, Cynthia, it's really great to see you. Thank you. And uh, we're excited to hear from you today on this. I, I do want to kick off with how investors are differentiating between these ETFs that on the surface, for a lot of people, kind of look the same. How are people distinguishing between what Fidelity is offering and what BlackRock and Grayscale and others are doing? Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for having me today. Um, uh, we are really pleased uh, with, with the uh, market reception uh, for these products. And, and um, you know, what we think of um, as a you know, differentiator for the way in which we've designed um, this 
uh, product uh, is um, our ability uh, to be able to uh, provide uh, a custody solution uh, for these um, uh, for our uh, Bitcoin ETP, um, as well as um, our own uh, proprietary index methodology uh, uh, provided through our um, index uh, uh, team and, and capabilities there uh, for um, pricing. And, and that, I think, uh, is reflective of um, a, an over 10-year uh, commitment uh, to research and, and development um, in, in the digital asset ecosystem. Really interesting. I think a lot of people might not know how deeply Fidelity has gotten into you know, Bitcoin, but also digital assets. I wonder about the, sort of the next step here. An Ethereum ETF has been talked about. What do you think the odds are of that being approved this summer? Well, so, uh, you know, as, as uh, you know, we do have um, a filing uh, that is live with the SEC at the moment. Um, so I can't really comment much more, um, you know, beyond uh, what is on the public record. Uh, in terms of, you know, what we think about uh, the, the prospects, um, uh, you know, what I can say on that front is that we are looking forward uh, to engagement uh, with the regulator as, as we have uh, for several years uh, in the development leading up to the launch of, of the Bitcoin ETP. So how are these Bitcoin ETFs going to fit into sort of the average retail investor portfolio? I wonder what you can tell us beyond even digital assets, what you're seeing from the self-directed side of Fidelity and a changing rate environment now that these crypto ETFs are offered. Can you give us a little bit of a breakdown on the state of the retail investor? Yeah. Um, so, so what we've heard um, from uh, retail investors and, and really just all um, investors uh, across uh, different client segments on our platform um, is that there's a great deal of, of interest uh, and, and certainly curiosity and in, in wanting to learn more um, about uh, digital assets and, and, and Bitcoin. Um, our commitment uh, to you know, how it is that we think about uh, products that we make available on our platform is we want to offer a, a wide variety of, of choices of, of assets, um, but alongside of, of those choices, uh, we always ensure um, that we are providing uh, research um, analysis and, and insights derived from uh, our research teams um, across the, uh, the platform. That way, uh, you know, we believe that um, it's important to provide that um, education uh, as a way to help facilitate investors making good decisions. So is there room for everybody in the end? Do you expect some consolidation, maybe some of these ETFs to dissolve at some point you know, as fees are fiercely competitive? And, you know, there's probably not enough inflows for everybody. I wonder what you expect in the next you know, year or so or five years when it comes to ETFs and the competition here. I think that um, you know what we've seen in, in the ETF markets overall is that there is, um, you know, as you pointed out, uh, competition um, among um, similar uh, product offerings, and and our commitment is always um, to ensure that um, our investors have choice. These products are available across our platforms, uh, and and ultimately, um, I think the market will decide, um, you know, how and, and whether, uh, you know, there will be, you know, continue to be the number of, of um, similar products available. And these haven't exactly tracked the price of Bitcoin. It's interesting when you look at one of the charts, you know, Bitcoin's down 14 percent, for example. But then you look at Fidelity or BlackRock's ETFs and they're down, you know, 16 percent. When can we expect these ETFs and the pricing to more exactly mirror the price of Bitcoin? Is that going to happen in the next weeks or months, maybe? So all of the products, um, while very similar in terms of uh, the fact that they're offering access um, to the uh, single underlying asset, uh, they all do have um, different pricing methodologies um, or 
somewhat different uh, pricing methodologies, which may um, account for some of the differential uh, between the way in which the products uh, are uh, tracking um, uh, against a, a Bitcoin pricing index. Uh, ultimately, you know, as uh, there will also be fees and expenses uh, that will be incorporated, um, you know, these these funds, um, as with all other uh, index uh, products, uh, will always you know have some um, uh, differentiation from from the underlying um, uh, product. Fascinating time in this space, uh, Cynthia. Thank you so much for your time today. And Tyler, we're going to send it back over to you. All right, Kate. Thank, thank you, you very much, Kate Rooney and Cynthia Lobaset. We appreciate that. Coming up, Tesla on pace for a sixth straight week of losses. Longest losing streak in nearly a decade. The street's generally cautious stock, cautious on the stock ahead of its latest results. But one analyst still sees 40% upside from here. He'll join us next to make his case. Plus, not one, but two C-suite views on the health of banks. A couple of smaller banks we're going to hear from. Both companies coming off an earnings beat. Shares up 30% in three months. The risks they see to the consumer in this lending environment is ahead. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Tesla shares on pace for their longest losing streak since 2016. But could today's results spark a turnaround for the stock, which has been taking its lumps? Phil LeBeau here with the numbers and the narratives to know ahead of that report. Hey, Phil. Hey, Tyler, let's start first off with the numbers, because this will do the this will drive the stock immediately after the release comes out after the bell before the earnings call. And you're looking at EPS of 73 cents a share. The gross auto margins, and by the way, this is excluding zero emission vehicle credits. If it comes in north of 15.7, that may give a little bit of relief to the investors who are trading after hours. Free cash flow coming in, that's the expectation, 1.67 billion. Then in terms of the narrative, well, it's all about the 2024 production guidance, delivery guidance. What does the company say in terms of what it expects to deliver in the coming year, most believe it should be about 2.1 million. There's also this report that came out uh, within the last 24 hours that they are planning a new lower cost model. Not sure that they'll get into that on the conference call, but certainly uh, Elon Musk has said, look, you have to get to that lower market as much as possible. That's where the real growth is going to take off. And as I mentioned, in terms of EV share, Tesla, it still dominates this market. I get this question from people all the time. They still have over 50% of the market, but yes, its dominance of EVs, it is eroding a little bit, even as it grows EV shares and EV sales here in the United States. And of course, so much of what drives the conference call tonight with Elon Musk, as you take a look at shares of Tesla, it will revolve around what he's seeing and what the company is seeing in China. Do we have a sense that the price cuts, the price pressure might be easing up a little bit? I know he's going to say nobody knows for sure, but that was the case a couple of quarters ago, Tyler, that people thought, well, okay, we came out of the call and we think that perhaps the pricing pressure might ease up a little bit in China. Not the case. They're still cutting prices, not as much as they were earlier in 23, but they still had to cut prices in the fourth quarter. All right, Phil, thanks very much. Phil LeBeau with the reporting there on Tesla. More analysts are turning a little bit bearish on the stock ahead of the report, including Redburn Atlantic, initiated uh, with a sell today. Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas, one of the Jonas brothers, uh, slashed his price target this week, citing oversupply and a slowdown in global EV demand. He actually sung the lyrics to that. EV sales in the U.S. have been a in a steady decline since April of 22, as you can see in that chart. Uh, but despite all 
all that, uh, our next guest remains bullish and sees a 40% upside in the stock from here. Let's bring in Tom Narayan, Global Autos Analyst at RBC Capital Markets. I should point out, maybe we can take a picture of that uh, chart on the wall over there. Uh, Brian, can you pivot that thing? Look at that. They have doubled production in two years. What are they going to do next year, or this year, I should say, yeah, in terms I of production? Th- I think it's going to be 2.1 million is where consensus is. I don't think that's that unreasonable. That would be wouldn't uh, look like it from there. That's a yeah, they're doubling that's, every that's two fair. years there. But I think that's to be expected. We're yeah. in a lull, right? Yeah. But the expectations have come down quite a bit. Yeah, I've been transparent on this area in saying that I drive a Tesla, and I, I, I'd go into fuller detail on it. I do like the car a great deal. Mm-hmm. It's a very responsive, very quick car. There are a couple of things that, that I nitpick on it. Your argument, or part of your argument long-term for Tesla, is in robo-taxis, self-driving, autonomous vehicles that will be used for ride pickups and so forth. I am, I am an autonomous drive skeptic. You've got to convince me that those cars are going to work, that when there's construction, they're going to know what to do, and they're not just going to stop there with people behind me honking at me mm-hmm. while I'm trying to get to my meeting across town. So, oh, first question I would ask is: Do you have you tried FSD? The the, the no, I have the I didn't. Spring you have for autopilot. That. I have autopilot. Try FSD. Well, I think it's the best. Will they give me a pro- Will they give me a little trial on that? Will they give they me? probably will for you. For me, well, for, for yeah, regular people, uh, well, maybe not. For but, me. But it is the best consumer product I think since the iPhone. It is. It is an incredible product. Eighty percent of the time, it's driving for you. Yeah, it's amazing, and I think when they lower the price, which they so will you've been in one of these cars. Like oh that. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You've driven a lot. It. You've well, driven. It. It's driven me a lot, and I would say it, it's an incredible product. I think the reason that people don't realize it is it has such a low attach rate. Only about five percent Tesla owners pay. It's a high price. It's a high price. It's but what if thousands he, of dollars? But what if he lowers? They lower the price. The attach rate explodes, and people realize how amazing this product is. I think they're reluctant to do it now. Because of the liability issue? Well, that's what I was going to say. I, there, there are two things there that hold me back on that. One would be government approvals because, I mean, look. GM. The, the GM. All, all, government approvals is one thing. And insurance uh, uh, approvals and liabilities, yep. uh, that's another big issue here. Yeah, and there's a lot of knuckleheads who will, like, hang a string to a brick and then go take a nap in the back seat. And that's yeah. what Tesla's worried about. <laughs> they don't want those guys, yeah. right? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. they want to make it so there's a monitoring system that's there, and they want the product so good that the regulators not only are okay with it, but mandate it. And we're hearing about that. Legislators are realizing that a Tesla autopilot is five times safer than a regular car on the street in terms of accident With a cab rates. driver, a regular, I mean, you're talking about <clears throat> cabs here, right? So th- these robo-taxis are gonna be smarter and safer than a regular car service that I take or a street cab that I take. Absolutely, we already know that just the regular autopilot is five times safer than a human. Um, a robo-taxi would be pr- probably even more because mm-hmm. that will use, the software will be even better. It'll use mm-hmm. uh, machine learning. I mean, this is, this is years away, I should stress, but. The extension of where we're headed, this is definitely where we're going. Yeah. I want to get to the idea of where you see the stock going, and maybe you can wrap that into the, yep. into the answer here. One of my nitpicks with the, with the automobile, and I think it's one of the reasons why Hertz is saying, hey, we're getting so many high claims for, in, uh, not injuries, but damages on these cars, right. is that Tesla has really invested 100% in the utility of the touchscreen. And if you're driving, 
and you have to go to a touch screen and go down here to find where the radio is and over here to find where the, where the windshield wipers, your eyes aren't on the road. Yeah, I agree. I find that annoying as well. Uh, but, sometimes buttons work better and knobs. Right, they right, actually right. work. You know? Yeah, I think the idea, though, is that, if, and again, I would strongly yeah. urge you to try FSD, is okay. when the car is driving you most of the time and you're only driving it when something odd is happening, you're okay with the touch yeah. screen, yeah. basically, because most of the time you're going to be free to use it. Where do you see the stock going over the next year, let's say? I, I, look, I, I do agree that it's going to be challenged this year. There's not a lot of big catalysts, mm -hmm. but it's down $180 billion in market cap in the past three weeks. It's down 22%. And I know my price target's 40% higher from where it is today, but that's, that's because it's been down so much. And I think a lot of the negative news that's already out there is in the stock. I don't think it'll be that hard or Herculean to get to that 2.1 million guidance a number, and I think that's what's going to drive the stock. And remember, this is a largely retail-owned stock, yeah. and folks in that community are looking at 10 years out, 20 years out, 30s years out. They're not looking at it as a car company. They're looking at it as an autonomy company. Yeah, very interesting. Tom, we'll have you back. I'd love to keep the Got conversation it. going. Appreciate it. Try FSD. <laughs> I'm going to call them. <laughs> right. See what they do. A deal for me. All right, Tom Narayan, thanks. Uh, coming up, Netflix having its best day since October. I am too, actually, uh, after beating the streets estimates for subscribers and revenue. Uh, but is the streamer truly a bellwether for big tech earnings? We will look at what last night's report means for the mega caps. Best day since October for Netflix and me. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Kate Rogers with your CNBC News update at this hour. President Biden expected to pick up a key endorsement today from the United Auto Workers. Three people familiar with the decision saying it will likely come this afternoon when the president addresses the union at a conference in Washington. Last fall, Mr. Biden became the first sitting president to join a picket line during the UAW strike against Detroit automakers. Eight of the nation's most prestigious schools, including three Ivy League universities, have agreed to settle a case alleging they conspired to limit financial aid packages of some students while favoring wealthier ones. The schools will pay more than $110 million into a fund for students suing them, but the settlements will need to be approved by a federal judge. And comedian Jon Stewart is going back to The Daily Show. Comedy Central announced today he'll host and executive produce episodes on Mondays through the 2024 election cycle, with others filling in for the rest of the week. Stewart originally left the show back in 2015. Tyler, over to you. Well, that should be interesting to watch. Okay, mm -hmm. thank you. Thank Coming you. up, a check on the pulse of the consumer with a pair of regional bank CEOs, their views on interest rates, lending the Fed. Next, the exchange returns after this. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Concerns about a bank crisis luckily have not panned out since the March 23 collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, with the Spider Regional Bank ETF down just three-quarters of a percent since then. But some smaller, hyper-localized banks have felt a bigger impact of that turmoil. And since we're in the thick of bank earnings, let's get a check on a couple of them. We've got two CEOs joining us today. First off, David Zalman of Prosperity Bank Shares, which serves Texas and Oklahoma, and Jose Rafael Fernandez of OFG Bank Corp, which operates in Puerto Rico. David, we're going to start with you. Prosperity shares a little bit lower today, despite an earnings beat uh, and uh, taking a hit uh, off of a couple of one-off charges, which caught a lot of banks, by the way, the FDIC charges uh, that I guess are traceable right. back to Silicon Valley Bank. That was uh, a few cents off of earnings, wasn't it? 
Right. We, uh, I think we posted earnings around $95 million. Uh, if you took out the FDIC uh, assessment that we had to pay to cover the, uh, the, the Silicon Valley Bank and the Signature Bank, it would have been probably, that was about $19.9 million. So we've after tax, it would have been about $111 million, I think, for, yeah. the, for the quarter. I'm, I'm very interested. You have like 285 full-service banking operations, of which I, I guess 90% are in Texas. The Texas economy is doing pretty doggone good, isn't it? And so your bank ought to be doing great. The economy is doing good. Uh, obviously, interest rates going up with the Fed, uh, raising the interest rates, it, it has impacted uh the loan, the loan volume a little bit. On the other hand, the economic activity and the job growth still remains extremely solid. So uh, a, a very good economy, no question about it. So that was that was one of the things I wanted to, to uh, point to. And that is that I guess, is it loan volume or is it either the number of loans or the amount of loans down a little bit? And that you trace back to rising interest rates and people's sort of being more cautious or not taking on as much uh, debt. Well, if you look at our particular situation, we actually increased uh, loans by about 12 percent oh. for the year. But part of that part of that increase came from uh, an acquisition. So if you took the acquisition part out of the out of, out of the, the cake there, basically, we would have had about a four point nine percent increase in loans year over year. The third quarter, we had a decrease in the third quarter, which was natural. But I think we told most of the people that we would hit about a, a single to mid-digit growth in loans mm. for the year, and that's kind of what we ended up doing. I guess the number I was looking at was total loans down 1.2% quarter over quarter. For the quarter. That's over a quarter. Is that right? That, yes, and that's in the third quarter, and it goes back to what I, I was saying. I think that you did see, as interest rates increased, you did see borrowers kind of be more hesitant, watch what they were borrowing, even, um, even, even your commercial and industrial customers where they had a lot of money in, in checking accounts. Instead of paying the higher rate, they elected a lot to pay these things down. But again, uh, having said that, we, we still are looking for some growth next year at the same time for the first part of the mm -hmm. year right now where we're at. We, we still see, we still, we're kind of ahead. We'll still see some growth. We think the growth will probably be more in the second half of the year than the first half. Prosperity has this rather muscular presence in Texas, as I mentioned a moment ago, also in Oklahoma. Where will the growth come from? Will you add uh, stores in Texas? Will you add them in Oklahoma? Will you go into Louisiana? Where? What? You know, we really have, with the 280-something stores that we have, I think that we have enough stores. We'll, we'll probably do two things. We're, we do uh, mergers and acquisitions, so that'll always be part, part of our story mm. at the same time. But, but the state of Texas is growing so much, and Oklahoma, that just the growth from the people that are coming in, the job growth and and people having to have new homes and people starting new businesses, it, it, the infrastructure that you have to put in for for all this for all these people coming in. Mm -hmm. So, with the growth coming in, it, it almost has a natural growth to itself because of because because so many people are moving to the state. Yeah, it's really a, a, a demographic push, I guess, is what you would call yeah. it, of, of population and migration. Uh, thank you so much for being with us today, Mrs. Allman. Appreciate it. You're
David You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, we'll have you back. Thank you very much. Love to uh, touch base there. Let's turn now to OFG Bank Corps. It also beat on the bottom line, boosted by higher loan growth, lower expenses. That'll happen. You know, you get a better, better results when the, the, the loan growth is high and the expenses are down. Shares higher by about 2%. Jose Rafael Fernandez is vice chair and CEO of OFG Bank Corps and also the Community Banker of the Year uh, in the most recent year. Congratulations on that accolade. You deserve it, I'm sure. Way to go. Thank you. Thank you, Tyler. Great to be here. Glad to have you here. Uh, what's clicking for you? So we, we've been um, very fortunate. Uh, Puerto Rico's economy has been uh, doing very well. We have uh, grown uh, our loans uh, very steadily thanks to uh, a, a very good environment in the island. But more importantly, I think uh, the growth comes from us being very intentional about investing in technology, investing in our people. And for the last three or four years, we have leveraged technology to bring into our markets uh, leadership in terms of technology. And that has definitely made a difference in the experience of our customers. And uh, particularly on the commercial side of the equation, we, we have been uh, doing some good growth. Puerto Rico's recovery uh, economic activity index up about 6% year over year through November of 2023. You have steered this bank for a long time, right? About 20 years, 19, 20 years as CEO. You've seen the good, and you have seen truly challenging times in, your, in the Commonwealth. Uh, how did you lead this bank through those difficult times, through the periods of real economic dislocation and pain for many of the communities and customers you serve? So the word I use is being opportunistic. We uh, at OFG, we, we 10, 20 years ago, we were a small $1 billion bank, and uh, we had pretty good capital base. We leveraged that capital to buy and be acquisitive. We bought a failed bank in 2010. We then acquired two international banks operating in Puerto Rico in 2013 and late, lastly in 2019. So we've been, so, so we became the third largest bank in the island and uh, we were leaders in consolidation. So that, that helped us tremendously. Now we are doing the, um, the blocking and tackling and we're doing the organic growth uh, as we have the critical mass. We have 42 branches in the island, leveraging, as I mentioned, with technology. And all that has uh, just uh, allowed us to grow our customer base, have uh, increased critical mass and, and, and market share. So. Yeah, 20, 20 years of which 17 were a downturn, but um, <laughs> we, we deployed our capital, we managed our, our capital very effect effectively, and now we're um, reaping the benefits. Where is the loan growth coming from? Is it small businesses? Is it mortgage lending? What kind of lending? Particularly on the uh, commercial, small yeah. and mid-sized companies, and uh, also on auto lending. We, uh, here in Puerto Rico, there's a... Uh, a good opportunity for us to grow in the auto business, and we have done so for the last two or three years. But our main growth is coming from small, mid-sized commercial loans. And they are expanding businesses, starting new businesses, rebuilding, refurbishing, et cetera, everything. Cor correct. As you, as you know, Puerto Rico's economy is, is rebuilding from the hurricanes and the earthquakes, and uh, that is definitely... Uh, created a tremendous momentum in the economy. And, and you're starting to see private capital coming to the island also to invest uh, internally and from outside. So, so all, all those uh, are good data points for us. We have record unemployment and uh, the economy is growing. Manufacturing is doing well. 
So it's about time. And now it's uh, nicer to be a banker than the last 17 years, I'll tell you how much. <laughs> Been there 20 years, 17 years of them were trouble. But uh, we're happy uh, for you and your uh, associates and the people of Puerto Rico. We appreciate it. Jose Rafael Fernandez, the Community Banker of the Year, by the way, American Bankers uh, Thank you. Award. We appreciate your time. Uh, coming Thank up. You for Netflix shares surging on a revenue beat, strong subs, better than expected first quarter guidance. So what could Netflix tell us about the rest of tech earnings ahead? We will explore that next. The exchange will be right back. Netflix shares are higher after the company added more than 13 million subscribers and beat revenue estimates. At least 19 Wall Street firms hiking price targets for the streamer. So what does their customer, this, their, this quarter tell us about some of the big tech earnings still to come? Deirdre Bosa joins us now for today's Tech Check. Hi, Dee. Hey, Tyler. So obviously the mega caps, very different businesses, very different moonshots. But if Netflix tells us anything, it's this. It's keep it simple. So what are the characteristics of keeping it simple if you are a mega cap? Well, what Netflix has was, one, organic growth. It also had accelerating revenue, which is important when you look at an Apple, which has seen decelerating revenue over the last year or so. It's an industry leader, and it has high-margin, logical areas of growth. How B of A put it was like this. They're moving into logical areas like advertising, live entertainment, WWE rights, video games, not far out other bets. Other bets kind of implies like an alphabet, right? We were just talking about this yesterday. It's their moonshot factory where they have radical ideas and they're burning through billions of dollars each year. Wall Street, at least if we can see with Netflix so far, appreciates a more straightforward story. And when you look at other mega caps that might have a more straightforward story, a meta comes to mind, right? It is an industry leader in social media. It already has those OPEX targets behind it. It's increasing in reels. On the flip side, a more noisier or less straightforward story might be an Amazon, right, where there's still questions about its AI strategy and AWS growth. So that's sort of what we could see in the next few weeks as we get the rest of the mega caps reporting. Very interesting. Simple is uh, better, maybe, in some cases. Deirdre, thank you. Deirdre Bosa. Coming up, the NYSE airline index down nearly 9% over the past uh, airlines month as uh, Boeing planes face increased scrutiny. We will preview results from American, Southwest, and Alaska. Big Blue hasn't missed on earnings once in the past uh, 20 quarters, and the street is watching for any size of consumer trade down in McCormick's results. We'll get the trade on those names ahead of the, the reports there. And as we head to break, Here's a check on the Dow at session lows. Uh, the weak five-year auction at the top of the hour may be weighing on stocks. You see how it has slid in just the last 45 minutes. I'm going to take it personally. Welcome back to The Exchange. Earnings season rolls on. We're looking at computing, cooking, and carriers in today's earnings exchange. And here with our trades, Danielle Shea, Simpler Trading's VP of Options. Danielle, welcome. Nice to see you. Nice to see that fire burning behind you, too. Let's start off with IBM. Shares up more than 25% over the past three months as AI hype has increased the appetite for tech consulting. That, combined with recurring software demand, has stifled, bullish, but the firm's a bit more cautious on the hardware side. Your trade on IBM. Tyler, I like IBM here. I think that it's traded magnificently this year. You can see that they've gapped up the last three quarters and they've beat EPS estimates. 
three times in a row. So that bodes to a positive trend here. However, I will tell you that this stock is incredibly extended going into the earnings report. So for that reason, I don't like to make a bullish earnings trade, even though I love the longer term trend. I think that IBM is going to go back up and retest the previous all-time highs, but I would like to buy this on a pullback. I think it, you would have a much better edge if you got into this stock around 160, 165 to ride it back up to those previous all-time highs. So I'm eyeing for a pullback here post-earnings. All right. Be opportunistic uh, with IBM. Thank you. Let's move on to McCormick. Shares of the spice and sauce maker down 16% in the past year. Jeffrey's noting that while more consumers are turning to private labels, continued at-home cooking is a tailwind. Certainly is in my home. Danielle, you just don't love the taste of McCormick. I love Frank's hot sauce, man. Wow. You know what I don't like is I don't like the relative weakness. So when you look at the chart and you see what the stock has been doing, especially compared to, you know, you have the Nasdaq making a new all-time high and you have McCormick that's just continuing to trade lower. I also don't like the way that it's reacted to the last couple earnings reports. But I will tell you that it's very inconsistent. Sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. So with this stock as well, I prefer to wait until after earnings. We're up against a lot of resistance between $70 and $75 a share. So I think that if we get a rally up into that zone, that's going to be a much better place to short it and trade it back down into 60 All right, let's uh, move on to uh, talk a little bit about some airlines. Finally, American Southwest and Alaska all reporting before the bell. Shares of all three getting hit over the past year. But Alaska is the underperformer here following that door plug blowout earlier this month. Uh, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun meeting with senators today to address that incident. And just a day after United, the only other U.S. airplane that airline that flies that airplane, the Boeing Max 9, projected first quarter losses. Danielle, are the carriers low enough to buy here? I wouldn't buy these with my money, Tyler. When you look at the longer term trends, they are not good. And, you know, they may get through earnings relatively unscathed, especially because United did manage to gap up post earnings. Uh, but when you look at the longer term trends, they're down. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of issues right now with the airliners that are going to continue to impact earnings for the next quarter. So with these stocks, I think they're, you know, at least at minimum a hold I wouldn't buy them, but I would prefer to look for spots to short them, and especially Boeing. Boeing has rallied directly up into resistance. You have earnings coming up. You're likely to have investors bailing on this stock before earnings. So I think that this one's in a great spot to short it between 215 and 220. Well, that's Boeing, you say, is, a, is great, because that was where I was going to go. What, what has all this meant? Boeing has had let me just say, a lot of issues over the past four years uh, that bear on safety, and that cannot be comfortable for that company or for its customers. Yes, that's correct. And oftentimes when you have the airliners reporting earnings, let's say, for example, that they rally into resistance tomorrow or even worse, that they don't do well, a good proxy trade would be to trade Boeing because if they don't do well and Boeing has earnings upcoming, a lot of the times you're going to see investors bail on the stock, just like what happened with Tesla this quarter. You have Tesla investors bailing on the stock mm -hmm. just prior to earnings. So this can be a really good short-term trade just prior to the event because of all of those ongoing issues. Very interesting. Danielle, thank you so much for being with us. We'll have you back soon. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, Danielle Shea. Don't miss Alaska Air CEO Ben Minicucci, 
who will discuss earnings and the Boeing Max 9s on this very program right here tomorrow afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern time. The Dow is uh, still higher by about 34 points, but that's nowhere like it was about an hour ago. Perhaps that five-year auction, which uh, Rick Santelli gave a D-minus grade, uh, was what has taken the wind out of the sales of the Dow. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.